Identity is an important factor in American life. I think, however, that what identity politics has been used for in uh, in recent years uh, is to is to try to deter a class politics. Identity, race, gender, etc. These are important factors, and groups have been underrepresented uh, for bad reasons, for for uh, uh, nefarious, malicious reasons. But that representation un exclusively is not a solution uh, in an age of an economic class war uh, on the middle class. And that oftentimes uh, identity is weaponized against that argument. Welcome back to Politics is Everything, where we're discussing what's at stake in the Virginia legislative elections. Early voting has likely started by the time you hear this, which is Friday, September 22nd. I'm Kara ong -Wayley. And I'm Kyle Kondik. Kyle, it's entirely plausible that Virginia could join Georgia and New Hampshire as states that have one-party state government that is different from the party that won the White House in this state. Virginians' approval of Governor Glenn Youngkin and President Joe Biden um, have remained relatively unchanged in surveys of Virginia, uh, in surveys of Virginians from spring until now. About 51% of Virginians approve of the way Governor Youngkin is handling his job as governor, and about 40% of Virginians approve of the way Biden is handling his job as president. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what is at stake in the upcoming elections. Yeah, I mean, look, I think if, as you sort of survey the landscape across the country, you know, there's not a whole lot going on in in these odd numbered year elections. Um, there are a, a handful of uh, state governorships at stake. Virginia's governorship is not on the ballot this year. It will be again in, in 2025. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, this is one place where, you know, Republicans could take control of state government in a state that I think has generally become more hostile to them over the course of the last uh, you know decade or so, particularly at the presidential and the federal level. But one of the things I just wanted to express in, in the piece I wrote in, in, in our conversation today is just that, you know, Virginia is just a different kind of state in these odd numbered year elections than it is in a presidential or even necessarily in a in a midterm year. Um, you know, the turnout um, is in these in these, you know, off, 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 off year elections, as some people call them, uh, is is typically the lowest of, of the sort of four year uh, you know election cycle in Virginia. You know, there's always something going on in Virginia. Um, be it at the federal federal election level or at the state election level every year, um, but you know the turnout is different. And you know, again, I think it'd be easy to look look at the the, the key districts that that Biden won all of them basically in both the, the state House of Delegates and the state Senate, and say, oh, well, why is this so competitive? And it's just that the the, the presidential number represents more of like a ceiling, or you know, that's pretty hard to reach for Democrats as opposed to certainly a, a political floor. Uh, and so, you know, I go through in the in the piece just like. It's, it's not really a question of whether Democrats are going to match Biden, because in, 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 in all likelihood, they're not going to match Biden, at least in most places. It's how closely can they run to what Biden did in 2020 um, versus, uh, you know, how the Republicans run compared to Glenn Youngkin in 2021. And that's sort of, you know, wherever that lands on average is going to tell us a lot about what happened. I want to talk a little bit about what's going to, you know, what's playing, what issues are playing a role. And looking at recent surveys, again, of Virginians, um, uh, most recently um, at the top of voters' minds, not surprising, are number one, inflation, um, followed very closely by reproductive rights in a close second. 
Um, if you include jobs as a concern um, uh, and inflation together, a third of Virginia voters in recent polling um, are, are really concerned with these broader economic issues. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think these issues might play out? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's the, you know one of the big kind of policy flashpoints that I think is probably most relevant to the overall national scene is uh, that you know Republicans and Governor Yunkin are campaigning on a you know 15 week abortion ban that would have exceptions, the usual expe- exceptions here about uh, rape incest life of the mother after um, after 15 weeks. Um, you know that is and you know so so you could, you could look at polls and say hey that that's something a lot of people on paper are, for, are fairly familiar with. But what Democrats would say is that, well, hey, this is a limitation, a new restriction compared to what Virginia's law is currently. Um, and so that's sort of their campaign angle on it. Um, and so that's something that I think just comes up a lot. And also, like, it's yet another kind of uh, data point, I guess, in this sort of ongoing exploration of like where the public actually is on uh, abortion rights in the, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision from um, from 2022. Uh, you know, there are other things coming up. I mean, you know, Yunkin, um, a, a lot of his success or some of his success in 2021 was attributed to uh, him sort of, uh, you know, talking about education and, and, and pushing again, pushing back against what some see as sort of democratic kind of cultural overreach in education and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I also kind of wonder if, you know, there was a COVID backlash in 2021 that maybe was helpful to him that maybe isn't quite as present now that was things are sort of more back to normal than maybe they were even in, in fall of 2021. Um, there's, uh, you know, Democrats are running on, uh, you know, gun control in certain districts, uh, uh, you know, th- th- and, and uh, you know, you, you see sometimes, like, you know, this this contrast about like uh, talking about uh, like law enforcement experience and law enforcement endorsements, you know, crime is something that um, was came up in a lot of advertising in 2022, and it has in some of these races in, in 2023. Um, and uh, this sort of the, the, sort of some of the some of the ads of, I, I think about ones that are that have been playing up in Northern Virginia at one of the key state Senate races. Uh, Russell Perry, the Democrat, Juan Pablo Segura, the Republican, uh, in Loudoun County District, and uh, you know they're both kind of like like Perry was is emphasizing her past experience as a prosecutor. Um, Segura has has uh, uh, highlighted support from the, the Loudoun County Sheriff, and that that those sort of messaging was was very familiar to me from like watching ads from the 2022 House races. It's almost like Democrat or Republicans kind of feel more comfortable talking about crime as an issue, and Democrats are trying to kind of uh, uh, def- deflect is the wrong word, but defend themselves against uh, against those attacks by also seeming you know appearing sort of tough on crime themselves. Um, so that sort of stood out in that in that uh, particular exchange, and actually, that state senate district is is one of the ones that's probably going to tie the majority, you know. And it's it's um, it's one that that Glenn Youngkin barely won, uh, and that Joe Biden won by double digits. And so, um, you know, that that those are the kinds of places that are going to decide this election. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what you think might be some of the more competitive races. On that note. Yeah, so um, there are a number of them uh, spread across uh, Virginia, uh, and, and you know there there are there's both a, a competitive uh, House and Senate race in Fredericksburg area, which is sort of like a newly uh, you know competitive uh, 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 region of the of the state as sort of the sort of blue tide from Northern Virginia kind of pushes further and further out into uh, you know in, into into Virginia as a whole. Um, there are, uh, you know, there, there are a number of races in in the Hampton Roads area, which is 
you know, consistently a very competitive part of the state. And, you know, generally on the whole, it's like kind of slightly Republican leaning region, um, but also uh, uh, fairly, fairly competitive. Um, you know, you've got, I mean, we, we're going to, um, we've got six Senate races that we're really watching. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's one in uh, Richmond, Siobhan Donovan, um, Republican incumbent finds herself in a very difficult uh, district um uh that she that she's trying to defend and it's, it's probably an underdog to win to win re-election uh you know a, 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 a couple in uh, a couple in hampton roads and then some in northern virginia including fredericksburg uh in the house you know again 10 races that we're watching pretty closely you know sort of a mix of uh of you know hampton roads northern virginia in the richmond area you know once you get sort of west of richmond um there really isn't a whole lot competitive you know there's some safe uh, Democratic territory, kind of around UVA and Charlottesville and Elmore County, um, but basically the rest of that region is you know is blood red Republican at this point. Um, so you kind of look at the the, the so called urban crescent of Virginia, um, those three big urban areas is is where you're going to see the 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 real action. And you know, in Northern Virginia, it's sort of you, the, the more sort of le- or the less Democratic areas, the more competitive districts are sort of as you get further away from Washington D.C. What is your sense of how the court-drawn maps in Virginia may impact sort of some of the key races that you've looked at? Um, you know, so I actually feel like the, you know, the the map is like fairly reflective of where Virginia is. I know that I think particularly some Democrats don't don't like the map, and I I, I sort of I sort of get that. Um, and certainly, you know, that if if Democrats had been able to draw the maps when um, they had a, their window of power between, you know, the end of the 2019 election and through the 2021 election, the districts would look different, um, and be more democratic leaning. Um, but you know, you, you look at it and it's like Biden won 59 of the hundred house districts, you know, that, that just seems to fairly reflect the, you know, 10 point win statewide, uh, Glenn Youngkin won 52 of the hundred, you know, that, that represents sort of his, uh, uh, you know, small victory, uh, statewide in, uh, in in uh, in the 2021 uh, gubernatorial race, um, the state senate is 24-16 Biden. The state senate is 2020 for the gubernatorial results. Um, that that sort of basic dynamic that Youngkin won a couple of more seats in the House than he did in the Senate. Um, that is part of the reason, sort of basic reason, as to why I think the the uh, um, you know if you're just looking at like the Republican odds, they're probably a little bit better to keep the House than they are to flip the Senate. Although I you know I think both chambers are broadly competitive, but uh, you know, it's a, I think it's a decent mix of competitive districts and the fact that, you know, you've got, a, you know, basically all the competitive districts are Biden won, sort of makes sense that Biden won the state by 10. Um, but then Youngkin won about two thirds of the, the, the most competitive uh, House and Senate districts, too. So, um, you know, from that perspective, I mean, the maps basically seem fair to me. Again, some will disagree with that. But that's just sort of as, as I went through it, that's that's sort of the thought I had. Um, so also you note in your piece that uh, Governor Yunkin, through his Spirit of Virginia PAC, has really become a major financial player in this election. They've raised more than $16 million since uh, starting in 2021. Um, as of now, according to the most recent overall data, um, about $23 million uh, ending in about June this year. So we'll, we'll likely see a lot of ramp up. About 23 million so far has been spent in elections. And then uh, overall, um, you know, Democrats are, are broadly speaking, outraising Republicans. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the money dynamics in this election. 
Yeah, I mean, the governor has taken a lot of interest in this. There's some people thinking that, oh, well, he can maybe parlay a Republican victory into a late entry into the presidential race. Um, you know, the hour is growing pretty late for, 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 for him to be able to do something like that. And I mean, at the moment, there's really there seems to be oxygen for only a single candidate for Donald Trump in the Republican presidential race. But I also sort of question how important it actually is to a national audience, what happens in the Virginia legislature. I mean, I think it's really important and it's obviously important for Virginia, but like, you know, d- does, does young could sort of storm in as the conquering hero because he won state leg- state legislative uh, chambers? Like, I don't know. That doesn't seem like something that is super exciting to a, to a, to a national audience. Again, that's not saying it's not important. It, it is important. It just doesn't seem like some sort of, sort of huge deal in a national sort of, uh, uh, from, you know, from a national standpoint. So, um, you know, so, so there's all of that. Um, the, the sense I got from the most recent fundraising reports is that Democrats had sort of righted the ship in terms of their own, um, fundraising. Of course, you know, Virginia is kind of like wild, wild west in terms of, in terms of political donations. For, you know, there, there really aren't any, you know, real limits. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I think it's an open question as to like, you know, uh, uh I mean, spirit of Virginia, you know, Youngkin's group is, already spent a lot, but they're sitting on, I think, as of the most recent report, more than $6 million. You know, what do they, what do they end up doing with that money? Um, you know, that's, that's an important thing, um, an important thing to, to watch here. Well, Kyle, thank you as always for your fantastic in-depth analysis. Thank you. And listeners, speaking of money and politics, coming up next, we talk with David Sirota, founder and editor, editor-in-chief of The Lever, uh, who is also an Oscar-nominated writer and worked as Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign speechwriter. He joins us to talk about the role of big money in politics, Biden's chances for re-election in 2024, and about the crisis among American men. Stay tuned. Hi, David. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to the lever and what made you change lanes from working in politics uh, from the inside as opposed to founding the lever and continuing to work as an independent journalist? So I, uh, I guess um, I, I, when I got out of college, I had worked for Bernie Sanders uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, I didn't know who's I was applying to when I when I got that job. He was a this was uh, all the way back in the late 1990s, uh, and um, it was a really really eye opening job. And that was part of my beginning of my work in politics. And it's only to offer a, a, a preface for the fact that um, I ultimately, uh, after a, a long set of uh, different jobs in um, campaigns and in then in journalism I, I ended up finding myself in 2019 working for Bernie Sanders and his presidential campaign as his speechwriter so I knew him for a very long time uh, by the time I ended up working for his presidential campaign uh, and after that campaign ended in um, I don't, uh, what was a sort of I can't remember when I exactly left but it was March or April when it was sort of over um, or ending. Um, I decided that I wanted to go back uh, to journalism where I had been before I worked on his presidential campaign. I had been working as a reporter for International Business Times and Newsweek before that and for Capital in Maine. Uh, And so I decided I wanted to go back to journalism and I decided that there was a new way to do that, uh, which is through a creating a reader supported uh, news entity 
uh, and I wanted to try that out. And it started out as just a, a newsletter with me and a reporter that I had worked with for a long time. And I decided that I didn't want it to just be uh, a single um, a single reporter entity. I wanted it to be um, a, a, a media organization, a, a news outlet that's that's bigger than one or two people. Uh, and we ended up having enough reader support to be able to do that. And so here I am. Hi, David. Um, my name is Abby, and I'm a third year at UVA and an intern for the Center for Politics. Um, so you've written and talked about the role that big money has on politics. Can you talk about the role that it has played on the Biden administration's agenda? And what are the levers to change big money in big money's influence on politics? Sure. I think, um, look, I think we live in a moment really in an era of uh it it should be presumed i think most people do presume it that money uh influences if not determines outcomes in the political arena uh i think you don't have to look very far to see that um i, I i'm working on a project now about the uh methodical uh efforts to legalize corruption in america um, you know, I think people hear the term Citizens United, and that's sort of a, um, that's a, uh, a kind of a placeholder for what I'm talking about. But I think it's, I think most Americans understand that money is very influential in our politics. I should mention that the legalization of corruption does, uh, that, that story does run straight through Virginia. Uh, the McDonnell, Bob McDonnell Supreme Court case, uh, which essentially uh, legalized the buying of access to politicians. Um, Bob McDonnell, the former uh, Virginia governor, that was a, a huge, one of the pillars of that legalization of corruption. Um, to your question about how does money influence the Biden administration, well, one way you can see it is through omission. Money, in in my view, in that sense, buys silence. Um, I think uh, you can see some of the influence of money on um, uh, perhaps uh, Biden's climate policies, some of his climate policies at least. Uh, the energy industry, the traditional energy industry, gives a lot of money uh, to uh, floods the money, uh, floods the political process with money. Uh, Joe Biden has opened up uh, large swaths uh, of the ocean for offshore uh, drilling, uh, also onshore drilling, uh, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, and, and I, I think there's an important point here, which is, which is, it's not just the money that the Democratic Party or Joe Biden uh, takes, or the money that the Republican Party uh, takes. It's also the implicit threat of what money will do to you if you take a position against big money. So in other words, uh, a president or a politician may not get money from an industry, but may fear that if they do something that antagonizes an industry, that that industry will spend a lot of money to get them uh, thrown out of office in the next election. So there, money also plays kind of that negative deterrent role uh, to politicians ever getting involved in uh, sets of issues that big money does not want those politicians to get involved in. One, I want to thank you. I think The Lever has done just incredible uh, journalistic work uncovering a lot of this influence from behind the scenes. And 
to what you were saying, I wonder, on the hills rising during your appearance on May 3rd in 2023, you were speaking about the uh, president's re-election chances, uh, and you said, I'm quoting you now, uh, when you are the incumbent and the election is likely to be inherently a referendum on the incumbent, if you are not delivering in a serious way or seen as fighting to deliver in a serious way, it puts you in a very precarious position. And so I wonder, uh, that was about four months ago, how has your assessment of uh, President Biden's uh, administration changed or not changed? And to what extent do you think that uh, politically precarious position is owed in some part to the influence of money, which has, uh, as you just outlined, uh, served to obstruct a more progressive agenda? Well, look, I, I think when Biden started out, he did probably the most positive, transformative piece of legislation that I can remember in my own lifetime, uh, which was the American Rescue Plan, which was for the first time uh, a president and a Democratic Congress, first time in my lifetime, got together and actually passed a large stimulus bill that delivered resources not to the top in hopes that it would trickle down. This was a, uh, a divergence from the Obama administration, which came into office and passed uh, the bailouts, the bank bailouts, which was a classic trickle-down proposal. Uh, this is much different from that. Uh, and it delivered real results. Uh, child poverty went down. Uh, uh, people, uh, businesses were, were, were floated. Uh, people were able to to survive in ways uh, that they weren't economically able to survive beforehand. And you saw that in the numbers. I mean, this, the Census Bureau numbers showed that the number of people who were economically struggling uh, dropped uh, when that bill was passed and the resources began moving out. Now, since then, uh, that bill, uh, because they put expiration dates on it, uh, that bill ended. Uh, and Biden ended uh, stimulus, uh, excuse me, uh, pandemic emergency uh, programs, uh, which ended up uh, having millions of people thrown off programs like Medicaid. Um, you know, obviously the child tax credit, uh, the expanded child tax credit was not uh, extended. Uh, Biden did not uh, really push for it. Democrats uh, actually uh, blocked a vote from my old boss, Senator Bernie Sanders, on. Uh, trying to reinstate or extend the, that child tax credit. So I think now you're seeing all of the uh, unfortunate fruits of that, which are a, a, a huge increase in child poverty, uh, uh, healthcare costs unaffordable, uh, housing costs are unaffordable, more and more Americans now, an increasing number of Americans saying they're actually struggling uh, to economically survive. You don't have to believe me on that, by the way, that, that census numbers, the Federal Reserve. I mean, there was this incredible Federal Reserve report recently uh, that that sounded the alarm uh, and said that uh, that Americans are struggling in ways that they haven't struggled uh, for in, in a very, very long time. Uh, so this is not speculation here. This is this is. This is real life, and I think the problem for Biden is that uh, he he and the Democratic Party are out there um, saying everything, effectively saying uh, everything is great. A lot of Democratic pundits saying, "Why are Americans ungrateful?" You know, what, it's such a mystery as to why Americans aren't uh, in the polls more supportive of Biden's economic management. 
But again, I, I just go back to uh, here's I've got the Fed study right here. I mean, I mean, this is from the Fed. This is not a left wing source, right? Here's the quote, quote, the share of adults doing at least okay financially fell sharply in 2022 and was among the lowest observed since 2016. The decline in financial well-being occurred broadly across the population. So I think the, the problem for Biden is, is that in, that he's sort of saying, hey, every he or at least the Democratic Party is exuding this idea that Americans should be more grateful for the economy. And it is certainly true that the economy is not as bad as it was at, uh, during the financial crisis. I mean, the job market is is decent. Um, there are macroeconomic indicators that are decent, but in a microeconomic way, uh, poverty is up, housing costs unaffordable, and now student debt payments are, are starting back up, people are being thrown off Medicaid. I think people's lived experience is not so great. And so I think the problem for Biden is, is if you're going out and saying people are ungrateful, people are saying, look, my lived experience is is not great. And the, and the president and his party are saying that I'm wrong or I'm stupid or I'm misled. To my mind, the, the correct posture is to say, we need to be doing a lot more. We have a, an intransigent opposition in Congress, uh, the Republicans that have blocked us from doing more, and we will do as much as we can now and do more if we're able to uh, retake full control of Congress. But you haven't really heard that message. Uh, and I think to to get to a, a very long way to get to your question about money, how much does money uh, impact that? Well, I think the American Rescue Plan was able to pass because it didn't antagonize really any industry. Uh, there was no real organized corporate opposition to the government simply cutting a big check uh, it's great that that big check was cut. Uh, but I think the reason why you haven't seen uh, more of that is because it's also not a priority for big money to pass that, that there are there isn't really a corporate uh, mobilization behind uh, uh, initiatives to make sure that the working class of this country has enough resources to survive. Uh, and we know that the way Washington works is it usually is whatever corporations ask for, they get. And if corporations aren't asking for something, they usually don't get it. I wonder just quickly, a lot of the levers reporting and you yourself have reported on very specific ways that Biden can actually effectuate meaningful economic change for the American populace without needing approval for Congress. And so I wonder uh, if you could just walk us through one or two of the ways that uh, Biden could do this, either via executive order or other actions available to the president. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think for for one thing, uh, there are definitely ways for Biden to actually uh, cancel student debt. Uh, he uh, he 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 put forward a, a, a proposal to do it. The supreme, and it was a proposal that I think the White House knew the Supreme Court uh, could intervene on. But there are still other ways through executive action. That he can that he can do this that he hasn't decided uh, to do, uh, and so I think that's not only bad policy; it's bad politics. Uh, it, it, it if you're not using uh, the uh, the the Higher Education Act of 1965 uh, in the way that it can be that it can be used, 
uh, I think that's that that that's a failure, uh, and I think that's unfortunate, and I think it's frankly it's it's immoral. Um, I, I think that like that that I guess what I'm saying is is that uh, this administration has tended to play by the so-called norms. Uh, we tried one way, the Supreme Court said no, so we're not going to try really another way, even though uh, there are plenty of levers to pull, no pun intended. Uh, and and I think it shows a lack uh, of uh, of ambition. Um, the Biden administration, as another example, uh, could um, close uh, corporate, uh, excuse me, uh, a, a tax loophole that we reported on uh, from Donald Trump's uh, tax bill. Uh, uh, that is basically, it was about the, the so-called state and local tax exemption uh, that could save $50 billion. Uh, the Biden administration could do that through its own IRS. Some people argue that that loophole uh, is illegal anyway, uh, and the Biden administration uh, hasn't done that. Now, I will say the Biden administration has used its authority in ways that are good, which show you the extent to which they could use that authority in all the, in, in all the other ways that I'm talking about. Uh, I, for instance, when it comes to labor law, the Biden administration uh, really has used executive authority to try to strengthen uh, the power of workers to organize into unions. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, the Biden administration has used its power at the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, to enforce uh, uh, antitrust law on the books. Uh, I think those are good initiatives. And I think they tell us that in other ways, Biden could be doing those things, but hasn't gone to that extent to do them. Changing topics a little bit, in a recent interview you conducted for The Lever, you spoke uh, with author Richard Reeves about the crisis amongst American men, especially working class men and boys, including that they are less likely to graduate from college and that they experience much higher rates of, quote, death and despair, uh, a suicide rate of four times that of women. Uh, it was an incredibly powerful conversation that highlights the importance of taking intersectionality seriously and not succumbing to uh, zero-sum mentality. I wonder if you could just expand on that conversation a little, some of your thoughts, and also um, generally within the sort of broad cultural discourse, the sort of notion that uh, men, specifically white men, are having a tough time of it nowadays is often a message that's coded to the words, the political right. Could you tell our audience a little bit why you think uh, the left should not leave that message exclusively to the right and how the left should be talking to young men? Sure. I, look, I think, the, and that book from Richard Reeves is really important because it, it puts out there these statistics that are, some of which that you recounted, that are, that are just indisputable. Um, I, I think Part of the problem in our discourse uh, uh, is that is that there's become a focus on what's called identity politics in ways that I think um, can be um, destructive in terms of being able to have conversations about certain topics that don't fit into uh, the identity politics matrix. Identity is an important factor in American life. I'm not downplaying its its importance. Uh, identity and representation is important. Uh, I think, however, that what identity politics has been used for in uh, in recent years 
is to is to try to deter a class politics. Uh, and, and the way I, I've sort of described this is, is that even if you fixed uh, the uh, lack of representation in an oligarchy and created a more diverse, more representative oligarchy, it would still be an oligarchy. What I'm trying to say is that identity, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera, these are important factors and groups have been underrepresented uh, for bad reasons, for, for uh, uh, nefarious, malicious reasons. But that representation un uh, exclusively is not a solution uh, in an age of an economic class war. Uh, on the middle class. It is my view that the central problem in America uh, is uh, that the wealthy and powerful have too much wealth and too much power. Uh, and that that is the central problem. And that oftentimes uh, identity is weaponized against that argument. So as it relates to uh, the, the struggles of, of boys and men, uh, I think sometimes the, uh, progressives want to avoid talking about that for fear that ta even talking about those problems will be portrayed as saying that those problems are more important than problems facing women or problems facing people of color, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think we have to be mature <laughs> and understand that uh, multiple different uh, subsets of the society uh, are in crisis, uh, and that we have to be honest about that. Because if you pretend that what Richard Reeves reports is not a crisis, or you can't talk about it for fear of being accused of only caring about uh, men or only caring about white men, then you're leaving the. Not only are you leaving those problems unaddressed, you're allowing uh, the far right to uh, exploit those problems. With solutions that aren't really solutions, which with with policies that are dangerous. So the reason I had that conversation with with Richard Reeves is because I think it's important for uh, the Amer for whether it's the Democratic Party, the American Left, basically forces that are not on the right to be talking about and addressing those problems. One example: I mean, when I worked for Bernie Sanders many years ago, uh, in 1999 and 2000. Bernie Sanders was one of the people warning that if we signed uh, a lobbyist-written free trade agreement with China, it would offshore millions and millions of uh, factories, millions and millions of manufacturing jobs, uh, and that that would hurt the working class. Among that working class is the white male working class. Not only Those are not only the people who would be hurt, but certainly that was a part of the population uh, that would be hurt. Uh, and Bernie Sanders was able to, to speak to that issue, uh, uh, in, by the way, not in identity terms, because again, I think wor working class is <laughs> a multiracial working class, uh, but th those issues have sort of gone away uh, among the Democratic Party. The, the, the party that's talking uh, manufacturing jobs and about trade policy and the like, the party now that talks about those issues uh, is the Republican Party. Uh, and so I, th I think that's a, that's a missed opportunity to speak 
uh, to uh, to the working class of this country. At the time that, that, that this shift has happened, we've seen these industrial states, uh, whether it's Ohio or Indiana uh, in the 2016 election, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, move to the right, I think in part because the perception was that the Republican Party was at least speaking to the white working class. Uh, and not excluding the white working class from who it was talking to, uh, while the Democrats didn't really want to talk about that, those kinds of issues. I mean, you had in that election, you had Barack Obama uh, campaigning for another uh, corporate written free trade deal, while you had Donald Trump campaigning uh, against those trade deals. And, and I think, you know, uh, the Democrats essentially uh, ha have kind of, in a sense, and, and, and there's an economic reason behind this, have tried to prioritize uh, identity over a class politics, and then you have to ask why. And it goes back to the to the issue that we've been talking about from the beginning. I believe part of that goes back to money, and here's how. If you are a Democratic politician, you would rather talk about and campaign on things that don't offend your party's big corporate donors. Big corporate donors are not offended by diversity initiatives and identity initiatives. Now, I think diversity initiatives and identity initiatives are good. I, I want to be clear about that. I believe that, that uh, uh, racial, ethnic, gender groups that have been underrepresented, uh, that is an injustice in the society that needs to be addressed. But, but addressing those does not offend or challenge corporate power and wealth. And I believe that corporate power and extreme wealth are the central problems in this society. So if you're a democratic politician, you would prefer a politics where you're mostly campaigning on identity issues because it doesn't offend your donors. Uh, and, and again, the problem with that is, is that you leave the Republican party and the right to be talking about economic and class issues on cultural terms, proposing far-right uh, destructive policies. So I guess that's a long, long way of saying that if the Democratic Party and the left is not speaking to the problems not just of uh, uh, racial, ethnic minorities, uh, 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 people of color, women, but also speaking to uh, men, uh, white men or otherwise, and the problems, uh, the crises facing uh, boys, the far right will be speaking to that group in, in a demagogic and dangerous way. I absolutely agree with what you've laid out. And I think you've um, talked a, a lot about some really important structural issues within the Democratic Party, the ways in which the Democratic Party, as you've laid out, in your view at least, um, relies on capital. Uh, the ways in which the Democratic Party, which you've referred to in the past as undemocratic, small d democratic. And so I wonder, given these sorts of restraints, given these sorts of flaws and shortcomings on the, uh, from the Democratic Party, uh, what do you make of the third party strategy that's currently being pursued by uh, Cornell West is uh, the most prominent example currently running for president under the Green Party? Uh, and what do you make of the argument that Dr. West is a spoiler? Uh, just to uh, lay out the opposing argument, others have argued that the Democratic Party will not uh, do anything that is not in its best political interest. And so 
uh, working within the Democratic Party and against capital, some claim is not possible. Uh, what would you say to that argument? My argument on all of this stuff is that I don't think we have to, uh, I don't think that there's one right way, one correct way, one productive way to move uh, American politics uh, in a direction that is more uh, fundamentally connected to people in a more small d uh, democratic direction. Uh, I, I reject the argument that third parties are the only way to move American politics. I also reject the idea that we can that we can and should never have any uh, third or fourth or alternate parties. I reject both of those arguments. Uh, I think you can uh, uh, exert positive influence on the political process uh, from a from outside the two party system. I believe you can exert positive influence from inside the two party system. Uh, I, I also don't believe that voting is a religious expression of one's core soul or core identity. I think voting in this country is a calculated decision. Uh, it, is the it is the lowest, uh, most minimal form of political participation. I say that because whenever these conversations happen, people are like, well, you, you're going to vote for the, the Democrat in, in the general election, or well, you're going to vote third party and you're going to spoil. I, 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 and that means you're this. I reject the idea that the way you vote uh, uh, inside of this immoral system is a statement uh, of your core morality. Uh, I mean, for some it is, I guess. Uh, but my point is, is that these are tactical decisions, especially when it comes to, am I going to, are people going to vote third party? Are they going to vote for the Democrat in the general election? I mean, I do think there's a statement of values that's at some basic level on whether you're voting sort of broadly speaking on the uh, center left or whether you're voting on the right. But I think, you know, tactically, is it more useful to vote for a third party than to vote for the Democrat in a general election? I don't think there's any one right answer to that. Now, when it comes to this election, I would say this. If the Democratic Party faces a so-called spoiler threat from a candidacy like Cornell West, that is the Democratic Party's fault in the sense that the Democratic Party has plenty of resources and plenty of power to make, it should at least, it, it certainly does when it comes to money, to make sure that that spoiler candidate is not a spoiler, right? I mean, to call a, at least at this point, a very minor underfunded candidacy, at least for now, and I'm not denigrating uh, Dr. West. I'm just saying, I'm just saying in terms of a platform, in terms of institutional support, in terms of infrastructure, if the Democratic Party sees something like that as such a huge threat, it's a statement about the patheticness and weakness of the Democratic Party, because they're, the way you uh, uh, eliminate the spoiler effect of another candidate is to one thing you could do is make that candidate irrelevant by virtue of uh, accepting some of that candidate's positions or or co-opting some of that candidate's positions. In other words, defanging the argument that that candidate is making about various issues. If you don't want to do that, then you shouldn't also say that 
the portion of the population that wants that choice has no real right and is being uh, uh, somehow disloyal by wanting that option in an election. But I would also say this, that if that's a tactical decision that a voter is going to make, the other calculation that the voter has to ask is, if I'm denying the vote inside of a general election situation uh, to the Democratic nominee in a tightly contested swing state, am, am I going to unwittingly, uh, or by virtue of this immoral system, help the exact opposite political uh, force that I really, really don't want to help? I don't think there are any perfectly clear answers to this. I, I think that you know everybody has an opinion on this. Uh, it's sort of like asking this: the, these questions, a question about who, you know your right to vote third party or, or the two party system. It's sort of like asking, do you believe in God or not? Everybody has a has an opinion on this, and I don't think there's one right answer. All right. Well, thank you, David. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Um, I, as always, we appreciate your candor. Um, if people want to hear more from you, if they like what they're hearing and would like to see more of your work, where would they go to find you? They can go to levernews.com. You can find the lever. I'm easy to find there. My work is, is there. And I just want to thank uh, you all for having me on the show and for the, for the really great and uh, substantive in-depth questions. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.